Welcome to voice print identification. When you see the red light go on, would you please state in the following order. Your destination, your nationality, and your full name. Moon, American, Floyd, Haywood R. Thank you. You are cleared through voice print identification. Thank you. Quite frankly, we have had some very reliable intelligence reports that quite a serious epidemic has broken out at Clavis. No, there have been some conflicting views held by some of you regarding the need for complete security. Something apparently of an unknown origin. However, I accept the need for absolute secrecy in this. This is in fact what has happened. I'm really not at liberty to discuss this. We thought it might be the opposite. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Lucky Dog Podcast. This is your host, Elias Roush. This podcast is sponsored by EliasRoushMedia.com. Today we are discussing 2001. A Space Odyssey, directed by Stanley Kubrick, written by Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke. So, if you're a cinema buff, or have seen, I don't know, a handful of movies in the last few decades, you are vaguely aware of 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's been memed, parodied, um, talked about written about for, what is it, over almost four decades now. So I was kind of going back in some of my Stanley Kubrick, uh, you know, filmography, and I was like, okay, I want to go check out 2001 A Space Odyssey to see what the big hubbub is about. Basically, this is one of the most innovative pieces of media that put you on a hell of a ride. And the reason is because he's one of the first to do it on the film medium. So it's a little bit jumbled in a way, but let me just say in short form, this is an experience. This isn't so much uh, a paint-by-the-numbers a predictable kind of film. This is this is an experience of what it is supposed to feel like of the evolution of man, and that is so broad. And you're like, oh my god! It's like, is how how can that be visually um, interesting, and uh, how can that tell an interesting story, a, a unique interesting story? And I would say that if anyone can do it, uh, Kubrick can do it. So, we're saying that um, this is one of those films that is uh, what I would consider slightly polarizing. There's going to be a large chunk of people that are going to say, this movie's not for me. I didn't get it. But then there's going to be the other side of the coin where it's people like me and probably, hopefully, people like you that want to learn and want to talk about the Results of what we found out during 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's really one of the movies that make you think and kind of leave you in a space that you're like, hmm, maybe I want to, um, you know, listen to a podcast, read about it, you know, find out a documentary about it. It, it seriously is one of the films that I, one, I have no ideas was possible that it could have been made in the, uh, late 60s. It's a 1968 film. And 
Um, the fact that this came out before Star Wars, the fact that it came out before um, the moon landing, the fact that we had no idea what it meant to be weightless on the moon, um, and they were able to, I don't know, portray being weightless on screen fairly flawlessly, I would say. So from the special effects to the absolute technicals, the technical achievement in this uh, is brilliant alone. So if you wanted to watch this, if you were interested in it from a directorial technical standpoint, absolutely watch this. Get your get your vice of choice. I would say that if if possible, if you absolutely have to watch it at home, watch it, you know, watch it at home on the biggest screen, the nicest screen. Um, get yourself some nice sound, uh, like surround sound if you can, or a sound bar, or put headphones on. I really think you need to be in the immersed experience. Don't have like the lights on. You you want to be solely looking at the screen. Um, so to get the full experience, that's what you really need to do. Um, and you know, get get whatever your vice of choice is, because I really think that you're going to be strapped in to this uh, experience. It's a two hour and thirty minute film, which sounds a little hefty, but in comparison to some of the uh, movies that come out these days, I didn't feel the the pacing at all. I thought it was um, fairly smooth for the the slow burn that it is, and it very much is a slow burn. The thing about this film is. The uses of color are so important, and I feel like this is one of the films you need to study if you want to learn about how to use uh, color in important situations to draw appeal to the medium, to to draw appeal to your video, to to draw appeal to your you know photo, something like that. Because almost every other shot, if not every shot, I felt like I could have taken the screenshot and posted it, posted it on my wall. Like I wanted photographs, I wanted digital paintings of the majority of this movie. It is an absolutely stunningly beautiful movie to watch. From the special effects to um, the technical achievements of it, it's just an absolute masterpiece. And I see why people have been talking about it. Um, I've been kicking myself in the shin because I hadn't watched it uh, sooner. Just because it it really is. um, It's a masterpiece when it comes to that. And not only that, it's the fact that Kubrick had the mind over 40, let's just say 40 years ago to bring together the team he had. I'm not exactly sure the entire team he had, but I know that he had lots of scientists on his, uh, on his staff. He had people that were working from NASA to create some of the spaceships. He had, um, tons of, uh, legwork behind him that helped him really do the details, the, the nitty gritty details of the movie. And it sounds like he did his research, which is very important, which shows that it can make a really uh, amazing movie. Um, so let me go through some of the uh, the people that were responsible for this. Stanley Kubrick, of course. This was Kubrick's, um, in his filmography, he had um, the most notable movies under his belt were, you know, Spartacus in uh, 1960, um, you know, Lolita in 62, Dr. Strangelove in 1964, 
Um, and then 2001, A Space Odyssey. And then right after that was A Clockwork Orange in 1971, which I remember that. And that's a, that is an experience, to say the least. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting to see how he went from uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey, on a, uh, what was it, on a $12 million budget at the time. Um, versus a clockwork orange, which I, I always, there's no way that, yeah, on a two million, um, two and a half million dollar budget. So it really, you know, slashed the budget from there. And then he went to Barry Lyndon, um, with Ryan O'Neill. And I don't, that movie is not talked about nearly as much, but, uh, I'm going to have to go back and maybe check that one out later. The Shining in 1980. Um, of course, that's probably one of his most notable works besides the ones we've previously talked about. This movie was, The Shining was produced on a $19 million budget, uh, at the time, which is higher than 2001. Um, and eventually he went to do, uh, direct 1987's Full Metal Jacket. And, um, that was on a $30 million budget. So they really bumped him up from there. And then Eyes Wide Shut in 1999, which I believe was his last movie with uh, uh, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, and that was produced on a $65 million budget, which is, good Lord, that, that really jumped. Um, so, yeah, that, that's uh, Kubrick's... Kubrick's an interesting guy, and he really has a wide variety of different types of movies, and I've seen... The majority of Full Metal Jacket, I remember seeing it as a kid, uh, kind of traumatized me a little bit. <laughs> you know, Lieutenant Captain Piles or whatever the fuck. Uh, and uh, we have Eyes Wide Shut. I have not seen that yet. And uh, Clockwork Orange. I've seen it one time, about traumatized myself during that again. So, yeah, he um, certainly puts you through uh, an immersive experience with all of his features. Now, I will say that I've already listened to uh, the Paul Shear and Amy, I don't know what her face is, uh, Amy something or another. Let me see if I can get their podcast up real quick, but I'll link their podcast in the show notes. Paul Shear and Amy Journey, actually, I don't know what her name is, sorry, Paul and Amy, I don't know, it's their, it's their uh podcast that they do they are recording podcast on afi's 2007's top 100 movies it's like the top movies of uh you know top rated movies of forever or something like that so um they have a great podcast on 2001 a space odyssey i'll be sure to definitely tag the uh link that in the show notes they essentially read a lot of the um imdb fun fact trivia and i'll give a little bit of that myself but i don't want to regurgitate everything they said so uh, i kind of want to have more of an opinion based over here and uh i can leave some of their opinions and facts in the uh the show notes for you or the you know the podcast so you can go listen to it as well so um the thing about 2001 a space odyssey is that it's uh it's a hefty journey and it really takes three separate time zones um within the human evolution that really are kind of showing the evolution of man to say to say it broadly um let me give you a quick synopsis for anyone that doesn't really know what's going on. So, um, 
I'm going to give you two synopses because I think that this it's open to interpretation what exactly this movie is about. And so you can kind of take the bare bones of it and then you can go into detail about it. So let me do the bare bones real quick. After discovering a mysterious artifact buried beneath the lunar surface, mankind sets off on a quest to find his origins with the help of intelligent supercomputer HAL 9000. Now, if you've seen any science fiction within the last two decades, three decades, maybe, yeah, you've seen a take on the HAL 9000. So you've pretty, you pretty much are aware of what the HAL 9000 is. And for the sake of not having everyone's Amazon Echoes go crazy right now, unless you have it set to the Echo name, um, I'm going to refer, like, I'm going to say the Amazon Alexa, so she can't hear me. She might still be able to hear me. <laughs> but anyway, um, the HAL 9000 really reminds me of the Amazon Alexa. Okay, there I said it. I'm not. I'm gonna say it. I'm not gonna say it anymore. So it doesn't make y'all's uh, uh, the the bots go off. Um, but uh, it's weird that we have to whisper around robots now. It's kind of weird to think about. But anyways. Um, in 1968, Stanley Kubrick had the idea that we were going to be talking to artificial intelligence, a.k.a. the HAL 9000, which is the artificial intelligence in this movie in their ship. And um, it's crazy that we're actually doing similar. We're doing so much of what he predicted in 1968 we're doing today. Um, it didn't obviously happen in 2001, but... Uh, you know, we're we're very close to what he had predicted back in the day. Of course, we're not going from Mars to Jupiter and flying stuff like, you know, flying in ships like that yet. But that may be in the very near future. So let's um, let me see. OK, so I said we we're going to do two different synopses. That was the first synopses. Basically, they find something crazy on this, the, the surface of uh I think it's the moon or something like that. But the entire movie takes place in three separate locations. So the first location they take place in is basically the dawn of man. And it shows amazing landscapes. I couldn't do justice tell, talking to you uh, over the podcast about how beautiful the landscapes are. But apparently some of the landscapes were actually photographs at the time. Um, and not all of them were uh, film reel. So um, – Yes, they um, they start the movie at the dawn of man. Basically, how you know apes were became uh, you know separated into groups, which ended up becoming civiliz- civilizations, and they start to clash with other you know tribes of apes, and uh, they eventually come across one of these monoliths. And when I say a monolith, it literally looks like a giant square. Uh, sorry, giant rectangular. Uh, I, I don't know what is. I guess is a, a black monolith. I don't. I don't know what to describe that as. If it's not like a column, so it's. I guess is considered. I don't. I've never heard the word monolith before this, so it's kind of hard to describe it. It. It's, it literally looks like a twelve foot carved rectangle 
that probably weighs two tons. I don't know. Um, and it's just like sitting in the middle of a canyon. And all these apes are going crazy around it because they have no idea what it is. Um, and us as the viewer are kind of enthralled just as the, the apes are. We're kind of put into the situation of whoever is looking at this black monolith. And it the black monolith is kind of open to interpretation of what it actually means. And I'm not really trying to go into spoilers too much. This is, this is much more of just like the, uh, the synopsis of how it gets started. But the black monolith, I believe, is supposed to start represent the evolution of technology and that they have discovered the next best thing. And once they discover the next best thing, they need to go to try to discover the the next next best thing. And so when that black monolith is discovered, which is supposed to be, I guess, like technology today, when we've hit the pinnacle of it, we are, we are always trying to go to the next best thing. So it's a big I want to say this movie is a massive metaphor for the evolution of technology and the evolution of growth. Um, so it's with saying that you're like, oh, sheep, man, like I wasn't ready for all that. <laughs> but let, let me let me say it is deep. But once you get down to the bare bones of, you know, some of the detail, like it, none of what I'm saying is explicitly said out loud during the, the movie. Um so I feel like you kind of need to know that before going into the movie. And I like, even describing it is, is doesn't help like exactly what you're showing. But let me say I really do like this movie. The way that it ends is going to be polarizing for a lot of people. I, I feel like the majority of people that aren't all always speculating and need something spelled out for them. They need to say, this is exactly what this means. This is not that movie for you. You're not going to get a receipt that says, this is what you bought. You know, this is, you're going to get a receipt for the experience you had. So I wouldn't say it's necessarily for the ending of, you're not going to watch the movie for the ending, I would say. Although I think a lot of people, you know, it's going to be 50-50 in my opinion. You know, if you're going to love it or you're going to be like, wait, wait, what? So, um, yeah, I think it's very fair to go. Or, or you might be on the far spectrum and say, ah, I fucking hated it. It was two hours and, you know, just uh, landscapes and special effects. Like I can easily see a small sliver of people saying that it's just too much and it's a little bit. Um, I could see somebody that's used to, you know, today's pacing and today's, uh, uh, I don't know, taste in movies, uh, blockbuster stuff that they're going to eh, this wasn't really my movie. You know, I, you know, the visuals are nice, but you know, it wasn't my movie. Me personally, I gave this a nine out of 10, nine out of 10. It's almost perfect. I think it's one of the, uh, best looking films of its time. The fact that it happened so soon. So the fact that it happened before star Wars, you can see, you can see that they had to have like talked to the people in star Wars or star Wars saw what, uh, Kubrick was doing in this movie. Cause you absolutely could, um, see the, uh, similarities just like uh, Planet of the Apes. I believe Planet of the Apes was coming out around this time 
as well. So let me see. Planet of the Apes. Yeah, 1968. So it actually came out the same year. So um, I didn't get actually get to see Planet of the Apes 1968. But, uh, I mean, the special effects for what they had in this movie were amazing. Um, so, yeah, let me see. Really, I only talked about the first little bit of the movie. Um, the music, we could do a whole podcast just on the music alone. The music really sets the tone for the first half of the movie. It puts you in this state of awe and kind of euphoria in a way. There's not much dialogue through the majority of the movie, which is why I say this is an experience. You're almost watching a ballet or dance with this uh, satellites and space shuttles and just uh, the planets and atmosphere in general. I mean, it really puts you in this um, sense of going on a journey. And I, I don't really know how better to describe it than that. Like I, I, I'm still kind of in shock just the way it puts you in this state. And the fact that they were able to do it, like I keep saying, way back in the day with these effects on a $12 million budget, it's, I think that's probably more like a $60 million budget today. But still, it's, it's amazing what they did. It's this, uh, it, looks almost, it looks basically like uh, planet Earth in some places, except if they should shot in the moon or had shot like in space or something, you know? So um, I was really blown away from the technicals, as you, as you can probably hear. Um, I'm surprised it's rated G. I thought this was a little bit more um, thrilling than that, but I guess from the verbals, they never really cuss. There's not, there's no sex. There's no anything like that. Um, this movie did win uh, the Oscar for the 1969's uh, Best Effects, Best Special, Best Visual Effects. And um, let me see what else we have on here. This is IMDb's number 87 top movie. And let me see anything else like that. Kier Dula is Dr. Dave Bowman. Gary Lockwood is Dr. Frank Poole. William Sylvester is Dr. Haywood Floyd. And Douglas Rain is Hal 9000. Apparently they tried, I don't know, a handful of different actors that were trying to uh, do the voice of Hal 9000. And Douglas Rain had happened to do... uh, uh, some sort of documentary or something like that. And it was based, it was kind of like a planet earth kind of thing. And he had had his voice over it and they, they loved the, they loved whatever he did. So they brought him on and he, um, ended up doing the how the how nine, how 9,000 voice. Apparently he recorded it in like a couple hours in like one day at least, which is, it's pretty remarkable to say one of the most memorable voices with the most memorable lines was recorded in a day is it, it just, I, I don't know. It, it, it's one of those things you think that it takes, you know, 10 years to create something that will last a lifetime. But really this guy comes in and does it one day and everybody's all in awe. Um, of course it's not without the fact of, uh, having the entire technical aspects behind the movie being amazing as well. But, um, you know, it's the small things that we remember as well, uh, like the voice. So, um, 
let me see. Anything else about this movie that we really need to know? Like I said, it takes place in three different times. I don't really want to talk about what happens in each time because that's kind of the spoiler experience. Um, absolutely go watch this if you can. If it's in theaters, undoubtedly check it out in theaters. Um, I will say it's a little bit dry, like not much humor in it. Um, the story can debatably be a little bit all over the place. But when you start to open your interpretation and you have a conversation with a friend or you listen to a podcast about it, it's really enlightening. You learn about all these things that um, you weren't once thinking about the movie. And like I said, check out the Paul Shear and Amy uh, whatever podcast. I need to find out what the podcast name is real quick um, because the podcast is not listed on here. Um, Unspooled, I think it's called. Let me see. Yeah, Unspooled, uh, the Earwolf podcast with Paul Shear and Amy Nicholson. So, yeah, I'll I'll be sure to link that one in the show notes. That's only an hour, and it's pretty enlightening to learn just about some of the, the things behind the scenes. Like the apes apparently were played by mimes, um, and they had, you know, the best expression that you could possibly have when, you know, not having words. Um so, yeah, the just really interesting facts. Apparently, like Stanley Kubrick wanted insurance on aliens in, ca- in case they came down to, uh, to Earth before the movie aired or something like that. <laughs> I don't know. He was, this dude was crazy. Um, so let me see anything else that I want to talk about. Uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's an amazing movie. It's an amazing technical feat feature and uh yeah let's hop into the spoiler section um of 2001 a space odyssey so by now you've watched the entire 2001 a space odyssey this amazing technical feat with these dancing satellites and slow moving um uh signature i don't know like poised pieces of tech that are shown throughout this uh, throughout the majority of the movie I loved how it was shown uh, through all, all of the future tech was shown through I think it was the second act that majority of uh, shown it sh- showed demonstrated the uh, the uh, future tech um, essentially they predicted that we'd had have uh, iPads and that we would be watching screens vertically. I thought that was fascinating. I really want to go back and check out all of the uh, the future tech as well. As I was watching it, I was taking screenshots of it, uh, of the screen, just for sheer awe. I was, I was bowled over by how beautiful every single one of the shots were were chosen. I thought each one of the shots were specifically chosen because it was one extremely dynamic in the way that it the camera placement was. I didn't feel like the camera placement was uh ever in a location that felt unnatural, although everything felt like it was uh, a a painting or a drawing or something like that. Um whether we were looking at the astronauts whether we were looking at space, whether we were on on Earth, it was all spectacular. I actually took a few screenshots and put them on our Instagram page, so be sure to check out that if you're interested of uh, more 2001, the Space Odyssey uh, 
screenshots. I, I, I just, I could have them on my wall. And I want them on my wall. I mean, they're so beautiful. Um, I will say the HAL 9000 uh, bot or robot is a very interesting um it's an interesting idea, especially for 1968. Like I said, the fact that we they knew that we were going to have AI technology that we would have to call their name and have it, you know, able for us to have a response. And we're at the point now where we're telling, you know, our Amazon Echoes that we need to have our lights on, you know, start our uh, start our coffee or change the channel or play Netflix or the smallest things are today, but wait in a few, few years. And that, you know, piece of technology is going to be pick. I predict it's going to be starting our cars. It's going to be, um, writing emails. It's going to be predicting texts. It's going to be an assistant in a way that we can't even predict today. So the fact that we were thinking about this 40 years ago is absolutely mind-blowing, and it makes you wonder, did did they look back on this movie and say, that's a great idea. How do we improve on uh, the evil robot? Um, so it's obviously got... Um, it's obviously got a lot going for it when it comes to the conceptual um, ideas of technology, whether it's the iPads and the uh, on the chairs. I mean, just think about it back in the day. It was so expensive to have a single television, let's just say in uh, the mid-60s, have one single television in your house. And Kubrick was like, nah, I, nah. by the time it's 2001, or, you know, in the very near future, televisions aren't going to be expensive. They're going to be flat. And we're going to have individual screens for everyone. I mean, that is several big feet. I just all of that is mind blowing in itself for, for me personally. Um, I mean, the fact that he knew we were going to have vertical screens. Not that we didn't back in the day, but the fact that we actually are now, and they're, you know, Apple just released a, a vertical Mac, and it's supposed to be like five grand or something like that. It's, it's crazy the type of stuff that he predicted back in the day that actually came into fruition. And so the Black Monolith and the Dawn of Man really feels like it's, oh, it's basically we are the apes. And we are creating this technology and we're hitting that next best thing. And we're about to make that leap into the next zone is what I would say, the next time evolution. And so the second time period, um, the, the Jupiter mission in the movie, we're really learning about, you know, the world of uh, what Kubrick has set up and what the space mission is. We find out things go wrong when they find that black monolith at the Jupiter mission. And then shortly after that, we go to uh, we go to our main characters who are with five other astronauts or there are five astronauts total going to find out what happened on this uh, on the surface lunar surface. And 
basically, we from uh, the story standpoint, we find out Hal Hal is a lonely computer that might be able to feel feelings, which is one conversation in itself. But on the other side, um, he also figures out that the two astronauts think that he's malfunctioning and they they're planning to. Uh, you know, kill him or take him offline, whatever you want to call it. So there is a there's a lot just to take in with that. And apparently, there are small signs that are sprinkled in throughout the movie, such as um, uh, the chess game that he plays with one of the astronauts. I don't remember. I think it might be Dave. He's playing with apparently. According to the Paul Shear podcast and the IMDb, whatever facts, whoever the hell first person was to report this, um, apparently Hal lies on the move he does in the chess game so that um, he ends up winning the game earlier. And be- the fact that he's winning the game makes him lonely. He No one likes playing with him. No, He feels like uh, isolated as a robot because he's so superior. And so... Um, having him lie to the astronaut to to win the game indicates that he is, you know, able to lie later in the movie and he might be deceitful later in the movie as well. So it was um, something that completely went over my head. I didn't see it when I was watching it. I don't know. I don't know how to play chess that well uh, or, or at all, evidently. So it went way over my head apparently Kubrick was a massive chess player he loved it back in the day before he was a, a big filmmaker made a little bit of money off of it hustling but uh yeah so I um I I had mixed feel I guess no I didn't have mixed feelings I kind of knew how 9000 was going down was was going down as a bad antagonist and he may not be as bad of an antagonist if you look at it from a sympathetic POV that he just wanted to uh live and be alive I guess or something like that and feel um but if you look at him as a protagonist we've seen how 9000 reproduced and pretty much ripped off in tons of other science fiction movies now that I'm thinking about it. The one that comes off the top of my head, this is not a science fiction, science fiction, science fiction movie. This is a sort of a science fiction show. It was uh, Rick and Morty. Um, I don't want to talk about all the movies that rip off how 9,000, cause that's going to spoil all of them. But um, you, you'll know with a big, a red uh, a piece of AI technology with a red dot, as an eye is not going to be good. <laughs> so let's just say that. Um, but uh, I think it was Rick and Morty that I had first, that was the first thing that went back to my mind. I was like, Oh my gosh, I've heard. Hello, Dave. You know, <laughs> it's like, uh, uh, I, I, I don't remember the character that it was on nine, uh, on Rick and Morty, but I was like, God dang it, I've seen this before. And I'm sure The Simpsons, I'm sure Family Guy, I'm sure Rick and Morty, um, all of these animated cartoons, all of those animators had obviously seen that before, so it completely went over my head. So um, I was just a hair bummed um, knowing that uh, I knew that 
how it was going to turn bad. It wasn't as big of a hair turn for me, but I couldn't imagine what it would have been like being in the theater, seeing this for the first time and be like, oh my, he can read lips. And this that was one of the most gripping scenes for the entire movie when it came to the plot. The rest was much more of a, a feeling or an experience. So right after that, base you know to kind of long story short it the uh how uh, 9000 i think disconnects dr pool dr dr frank and uh there's essentially like 45 minutes of dave trying to you know save frank and then disconnect um how 9000 ends up frank gets lost in space but i thought it was amazing how they uh how they shot that I, I was really compelled during the majority of it um i did think that it was interesting that we didn't see frank's face after he gets um kind of skirked like it's just like he's disconnected and then we're from from our pov we're we're left in dave's pov for the majority of the time after that because we don't see frank uh, quote unquote suffocate or anything like that. We didn't see anything too extreme from the from the violence in on that. So it could have been a lot more violent, I guess, maybe because of the the budget was decreasing exponentially. That it cost a lot more for them to do these special effects than they thought. Um, they didn't show nearly any violence. Um, Let's see, let's see, let's see. Um, okay, so the third act, uh, third acts, it's the Jupiter and the Great Beyond or something like that, I think. Um, that's when it just gets into a real psychedelic trip. It starts to be, I think it's the last 20 minutes of the movie, maybe. Uh, just go absolutely ape tits. So we, we see a very interesting a disconnection of Hal 9000 saying, please don't, you know, please don't uh, disconnect me. Please don't disconnect me. And we see uh, Dave Bowman kind of floating there trying to disconnect every uh, all of the little, you know, looks like tape cassettes or something that are his memory. And it's the only suffering we see throughout the movie when it comes to uh, quote unquote piece of intelligence. And, uh, and it it's definitely affecting i you know i i'm very curious um what the interpretation of everyone thinks that it means but a lot of people say that he this they think the robot might have been uh how 9000 might have actually felt this or is he just saying it it's kind of open to interpretation when it comes to that so um yeah it is what it is i don't know how i feel about the transition from disconnecting how to going to the Jupiter and great beyond little confusing from this, that standpoint. I mean, um, let me see. Dr. Dave Bowman, I think is what his name was. Ends up going on this like psychedelic trip after he disconnects how kind of going through the space time continuum, you know, and the great beyond, one of the most interesting visual flares throughout the entire movie happened during this third act. And what I heard was people were going back to this movie just for this psychedelic scene 
people were going smoking, drinking, doing whatever they do, whatever vice of choice, you know, the the LSDs, the Mollies, the whatever. I don't think you do Molly doing this, but um, <laughs> whatever you did, DMTs, uh, psychedelic drugs. I'm not telling you to do that, but I'm just saying that's what they were doing back in the day and going to this movie and checking it out. So um, this was the scene that everyone's talking about, the psychedelic trip. I had never seen anything like this. There's sort of a scene like that in one of the Christopher Nolan films. I don't really want to talk about which, um, but even Christopher Nolan couldn't uh, match what this was, I think, uh, when it comes to the visuals. I do think the the, I think it's called a solar solar filter flare or something like that that goes over the canyons and uh uh the ocean i think at one point it's it's an interesting visual flare i'm very curious i want to see or i want to find out what the reasoning was behind all of this because there is at least a five minute abstract scene going on and you're 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 quote unquote flying through the space time continuum and just uh, it's, it's trippy as fuck. Just colors from red to blue, to green, to orange, to blue, to purple, to the black, to, uh, to, to yellow, to turquoise, to, you know, to, to all of these different, uh, you know, amalgamations of, uh, abstract art are shown on screen. And I, I couldn't, tell you exactly what you're looking at but you might be looking at a fetus in one of those little abstract uh like foundations that they're trying to create i mean there several times you have no idea what you're looking at and you're just like tripping out so they really put you in the uh the shoes of dave or in his perspective and have you going on a fucking trip i'm i'm telling you um that's that's probably the scene that everybody wants to go see in theaters and 70 millimeter or something like that. So that's exactly what I would go to see. Um, let me see. Anything else? We end up flying into this. Basically, it's the final room of the uh, of the show. It's, you know, it looks fairly Victorian is what I would say, or slightly Roman-esque. It has like these interesting statues. It's, you know, nice. It's in this green greenery, green room or something like that. And he's kind of looking at himself and versions of himself going from a space outfit to going into a robe to going into uh well, he when he's doing this, he's checking out the, the this room that he's in. It's like the final room he'll ever be in, or something like. I don't I don't really know exactly how to describe it. It's the final finale. Um, so the the pod that he takes to get to wherever the hell he is finally gets on, you know, lands in this room, and he is exponentially older. I felt like the majority of the movie it's mostly him just giving this grave expression or very poise expression i couldn't exactly pinpoint the the expression he was giving but it's uh it's a very one note expression but by the time you get to this scene and you see him he just looks so tired and weathered and i heard the old man makeup it took for him to uh put on took 12 hours to apply so he probably really was that old by the time he he was done doing all these damn special effects <laughs> apparently like he like fell on the uh 
<laughs> he, he fell during some of the special effects when they were trying to do some of the gravity, um, busted his head, like had to sit in the makeup chair for 12 hours. It's it's notoriously known that Kubrick's movies are much le- like uh, boot camp in a way because they aren't exactly always enjoyable to uh, to be on set and to to film. But damn, is the result good? So, anyways, he's in old man makeup back back in that room. He sees himself as a uh, old man and. He's having, I guess, his last dinner, and he drops the glass. And apparently, there's hundreds of people, hundreds of thousands of, uh, you know, possibilities of what the glass could possibly uh, represent. Personally, I thought it represented, you know, the shattering of a glass. Once you shatter it, you can't put it back. Um, so the actor came out and said. The only reason they shattered the glass is what he was told. He shatters the glasses so that he turns around and sees himself in the on his deathbed, I guess. So um, apparently it was just so that it would turn around. But it was so much detail. You know, Stanley Kubrick, just he, everyone thinks that it means something, whether it's religious or whether it's uh, plot driven or character development, something like that. I still think it's kind of what... Uh, what I originally said, you know, once it's broken, you can't go back kind of thing. And so, um, the thing is he's on his deathbed. He looks up and he sees the monolith and unlike on the Jupiter surface, the Jupiter surface has all of the astronauts kind of surrounding, trying to take photos of whatever the hell that is. And then it, you know, puts out this terrible, high pitch ringing noise it almost sounds like a fire alarm just at the highest noise also with the sound the sound throughout the entire movie is incredible it's just it's it's withering it's scary it's uh suspenseful it's elegant it's all these things it puts you it puts you where you need to be so the monolith on the jupiter surface puts out this terrible high pitch ringing noise which i found fascinating from the standpoint of the movie it's absolutely excruciating to listen to when you're probably in a when you're got a surround sound or headphones on it's going to be like the highest pitch beam you've ever listened to you might have to take out your headphones when you listen to it or put your your hands over your ears um so by doing that you're doing what they're having to do on the moon and it's therefore giving us, Kubrick's giving us a 4D experience by having that sound, um, which I had never really thought about ever. You know, when you're in a horror film and you jump because of a scary scene, it's emotionally affecting you. And now this, this is physically affecting you. And so you're, it really puts you in the shoes of the astronauts. We are the astronauts in that scene. And yes, it's a terrible uh, sound, but it's effective because it puts you in the shoes of the astronauts. And that's why I absolutely love it. I think that we need more movies that do this, that, you know, we don't need a 4D experience, but we need 
the uh, the emotion of a 4D experience to put us there. So he does not experience this high pitch ringing noise by the time he uh, Dave sees the monolith at the edge of his bed. But apparently, he is experiencing the next evolution. And so by by seeing the monolith, by finding it, it means there's the next level of life. And so therefore, that's where the big star baby comes from. That's what what uh, that's what I got from it. I think that the star baby is a representation of the next leap in life and evolution. So it's a big feature to tackle. I couldn't recommend it more just because it's a crazy fucking concept of a film. And uh, I think the majority of it lands. I could have used just a tad more dialogue in it just to kind of sprinkle some uh, what I would say is flavor throughout throughout it. But other than that, I thought it was it was an excellent uh, feature. So thank you for listening to the Luck Dog podcast. Please check out the rest of our podcast. We just checked out Men in Black International. By the, I, I don't really know when we're going to post this, actually. So I might actually wait for the anime, uh, the animation, the anniversary to post this. So this might be, let's see when this was released. And I might do this for a quick animation. Sorry, animation. Anniversary, damn it. Uh, I might do this for the an- anniversary. So the release date was April 11th. 1968. So, um, oh, for the United States, uh, oh, it, it did different days on the United States. Sorry, but it, it was early April 1968 for uh, the United States. So, yeah, I think I might wait for the anniversary on this. So, you're actually listening to this podcast, um, in 2009, around, uh, what is it? June, the middle of June. So, um, yeah, when you listen to this, no matter what time you're listening, what time you're listening to it, uh, please check out the rest of our, uh, lucky dog podcasts. Um, I'm sure by then we'll have tons more podcasts coming down the tube. Um, check out all the social medias. I'll try to, uh, link any of the podcasts I discussed in the show notes and uh, we appreciate all your support, all your donations, all the donations help keep the lights on here. Um, Yeah. If you have any comments, questions, concerns, rate, share, subscribe, look at dog podcast at gmail.com. Thanks Dave. And take it easy, Dave. Just a moment. Just a moment. Do you know what happened? I'm sorry, Dave. I don't have enough information. Made radio contact with him yet. The radio is still dead. Hello, Hal. Do you read me? Hello, Hal. Do you read me? Do you read me, Hal? Do you read me, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore.